What's up, everybody? This is going to be episode 15 of the Condro Cast. I'm Justin Smith, Palmetto Coast Exotics. Um, this episode is going to be with John Irby. I'm currently sitting here sipping on my coffee, uh, waiting for him to call me up. Um, so just real quick, want to make sure everyone is subscribed via SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Um, follow me on Instagram at the Cast. On Facebook at the Cast. Follow me at Palmetto Coast Exotics on all uh, all platforms. And um, this is going to be a really good episode. I'm really excited. John produces really some of the most stunning condros in the hobby in the world. I would I would venture to say. Um, so I'm really anxious to talk to him about those and get into how he keeps his and what it is about the designer animals that he's produced and keeps that that you know really draws them into that that category of chondros um so i hope you enjoy uh it's late i'm exhausted but i have coffee and we're gonna make it happen luke may join me at some point or another he was gonna join on but uh had some sort of emergency plumbing or some sort of situation going on so he may jump in at some point in this show we'll see if not they'll be uh they'll probably be on next episode so Anyways, enjoy. What's going on, everybody? This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and this is the Chondrocast, the podcast about green tree pythons and the people that keep them. Enjoy the show. Hey. What's going on? How are you? How are you? Good. Cool. Um, so Luke is supposed to be here with us, but he just texted me and said there was some sort of disaster at work with like a pipe or something. And so he might, uh, he might hop on in a few, but he says he's not going to be here right out the gate, but that's cool. It's all good. It'll be all right. <clears throat> But uh, happy birthday! Thank you. I'm. I really appreciate you you doing this on your birthday. I thought that was when when I saw it this morning. I was like, I wonder if he remembers. And he's like, I don't think he wants to be doing this, you know, on his birthday. But I appreciate it anyways. So. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about it. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was a work it was a work day, and you know, I don't really party. Yeah. Uh, and do stuff like that. So, I um. Yeah. So I just went to work, and then. Doesn't make any difference to me. I'm happy to talk about things. <laughs> well, you've been on the hit list for a while now to to get on here. Um, oh, cool. Being semi, I mean, I've been I've only been keeping condros for about two and a half years now. Um, it's still kind of intimidating to get guys like yourself and some of the original uh, or some of the longtime guys that are you know at the top tier as I as I call them. Uh, it's a little nerve wracking to be like, hey, will you come on my podcast? Oh uh, yeah, well you should just ask them. Everybody that I know that been keeping condos a long time but certainly doesn't think of themselves as yeah, that's kind of top, what, top tier. They're just dudes that have been doing it a little bit longer. That's what Brahms uh, tells me all the time. He's like, dude, yeah, just and they're ask all them. really really nice guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, we are going. This is episode fifteen of the Condro Cast. Um, yep. Let me turn up my headphones a little bit. 
turn you up a little bit. I think we're going to be good. Um, so this episode is with John Irby of Mid-Atlantic Arboreals. What is going on on your, your Thursday night? Anything exciting? No, no. Today was just a normal work day. And, um, you know, like, yeah, it's my 35th birthday today, coincidentally. And I'm ringing it in with a uh, snake discussion here. So that's cool. <laughs> well, and, I, I... Um, <clears throat> oh, go ahead. No, I, I just, I'm in the middle of a move. And so um, life's, uh, life's really jam packed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, but it's good. It's jam packed with a lot of really good stuff. That's good. Uh, yeah. We got a, I got a lot of notes jotted down. I had Luke and uh, David sent me some that they wanted me to ask while we were at it. Um, sure. But I mean, we'll we'll start off with the sort of the usual. Um, you know, who are you? Your uh, your your brief history with Condros. Um, we'll just we'll jump off from there. Yeah, you you. I don't have the outline in front of me, but I kind of know the gist of it. So mm-hmm. you just lead the way, and I'll. We'll chat. And so anyway, okay. but yeah, so, um, my name is John Irby and, um, I don't own any really crazy business, but the, the, what I call my snake collection and my Facebook page and all that stuff is mid Atlantic arboreals. And, um, I'm a Virginian and, you know, and so, um, I grew up in Richmond and I, I currently live in Alexandria, and I'm, I'm actually moving now a little bit south, kind of halfway in between the two, and I'm moving to Fredericksburg, and I just bought a house. And so I'm really excited about that. And It'll have a, a, a nice big, um, really big snake room down in the bottom. There's a rec- recreational room that's going to have a hard surface floor in mm-hmm. there, and, and that'll allow me to have, um, you know, kind of a, a 15 by 22 foot, um, you know, kind of two-car garage nice. space almost. And so that, that will be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so history of me keeping chondros. Um, I, um, well, I've always loved snakes. And so I've always been, you know, I was like a five-year-old kid that, um, you know, would always beg my parents to go to pet stores and hold everything they'd let yeah. me hold. And, and, um, and just, but I also, my mom and dad weren't, um, you know, just snakes were a little far out for them. And, um, now they've also kind of grown too in that. And just, I've with me, you know, they, they know that, but back when in those early, early years, I wasn't allowed to have snakes. And so when I turned about 18, I started keeping, I got a ball Python and then a carpet Python. And, and then eventually, um, I got a pet store Bioc, I think when I was around, um, 20 or something mm-hmm. a year or two in and um and i've been keeping chondros you know basically on and off every cent uh, ever since um there were a period in there where i didn't keep them for a really really brief period but um but mostly have been keeping them and um and yeah so um i started i think that was back in 2005 was when i first got my first chondro and mm-hmm. And, um, it was a pet store Bioc and, and then I'll tell you the truth. I, I, I had a little bit of trouble with that Bioc. It didn't eat. And this was back in the day when there was kind of the MVF forum and there was even Chondro web, which was a, another forum that, um, 
preceded uh, the MVF, and that was run by Greg Maxwell. And um, and so, you know, he had a really kind of a, a good-looking website with a lot of really awesome animals and a lot of lineage information and and just um, a lot of things to click through and drool over and, and learn about. And, um, and he had written a book and stuff like that. And so anyway, I began to have problems with that snake, and I had no one else to call. Um, and I actually ended up getting a hold of Greg Maxwell and he helped me kind of, um, wasn't really anything wrong with that animal. It just had shipping stress type yeah. thing. It was, and, and it just didn't eat. And so there wasn't really anything to be, to do other than to have someone reassure me of that and lead me through it and talk me through it. But mm. Greg was extremely helpful in that. And, um, so I, uh, I repaid him shortly after that by buying a, a designer condo from him. And, and then that's kind of what, uh, launched me down the, the path of doing what I do now and keeping a lot of different, you know, wacky bloodlines and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So. And did he give you the spiel of, of you should have bought captive bread instead of this import or? Well, no, I can't remember, but he <laughs> was a... extremely helpful and it, he was helping me with a snake that I, I didn't even buy from him. You know, mm-hmm. he was just a, he was a nice guy to me. Yeah. So. And that's something we see a lot. You know, I've, conversations with other condo breeders and you know they talk to people that that ask them about availability and and they're like okay cool I'll let you know and then a week later they're like hey i just bought this biok at pedco and it's not eating and some right. people are more than willing to help and some people are like sorry you know talk to petco and i don't know i kind of i for the sake of the animal i prefer to to try and guide the person and answer any questions they have or tell them what maybe they need to be fixing to see if that helps anything and so, but I mean, I, I also get the other side of it where it's like, cool, you just sort of gave me the finger and went a cheaper route, but yeah, yeah, sure. But, uh, what is your current collection consist of? So I probably have right now because, because I'm moving, I didn't, I had a clutch not go so well and I didn't pair much else other than that. And so um, so I don't have a lot of babies in the house right now. And that's, that's a good thing mm-hmm. because I'm getting ready to move. And so I have about 20 snakes total right now. And they're ranging from, you know, there's a handful, four or five of them are 18 month old stuff that I produced last season. And then, um, the rest are all my adults. And, um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, a handful of like some three year olds and four year olds that are kind of next in line. Oh, and so anyway, most of my collection consists of um, a lot of blue line blood, and and that's pretty much what I pursue. Um, that's what I've put a little bit of focus on as far as the animals that mm-hmm. I've bought and the stock that I've tried to buy for myself. But I've also had a friend, his name is Ben Evans, and he was a chondro keeper and still is in, involved really lightly, but um, he had some real, really, really incredible males that were not getting used all that much. And, um, and so he loaned them to me. And so one of them is this male soul train and I've produced a couple of clutches with him and, um, he's been a really stellar breeder for mm-hmm. me. And, um, and he's also produced some really good looking, uh, funky offspring. And so they've, they've been a lot of fun and, and they're a lot of high black stuff. And so sometimes it might look like the people that I, you know, I'm, I keep a lot of high black stuff and, and that I produce a lot of high, high black stuff, but it was a couple of clutches off this male sold train. And, 
and um, and so now that stuff has uh, weaseled its way into my collection, and I I do have some pretty sweet sweet stuff from him, and um, and even he's a blue line animal. He's just kind of a, uh, uh, got a lot of black going mm-hmm. on as far as what he expresses um, phenotypically, and then and then I've got some locality stuff too. I've got a Wamina animal that. Her name is Sophie that a lot of the locality guys really like. She's um she's got a, a kind of a blue frosting to her and um and she's proven to be pretty um um compatible with the US blue line, the the, the flashy one that yeah. puts out the really icy icy blue snakes occasionally. She she does she seems to com- to blend well with that and and I bred her to a blue line male and she's made some some pretty decently blue babies and or blue youngsters that are coming up behind her. And, and then I've also got, um, a little Bioc animal I'm raising up right now that I got from my friend, Brian Fisher. Brian's a good guy. Yeah. Brian. Yeah, he really is. Brian's got, um, a male that I own. His name is Tarzan. Oh yeah. He sent me, and he, he sent me plenty of pictures of that. And I'm like, man, that is, a, that's a, such a stellar animal. Yeah. He, he really is. He's, and I've, He's blowing my mind even now. I, I think I got him at about three and a half or four years old. And, mm-hmm. and now Brian's had him a couple of years. And and he was extremely high yellow when we got him. And then um, and he still is. And so that's that's it's pretty impressive that he has not gradually greened up. And, yeah. and he really is pretty extraordinary. And But he just didn't fit a lot of my projects. And so I sent him out to Brian's house. And Brian's playing with him and he's produced a few babies with him and, and I've got one of his offspring here. So that's, I say that's the, cool. didn't he, he hatched out one recently and that was the only one that, that he, the only one that he got and that came from Tarzan, right? It did. Yeah. Okay. He's got this yeah. female. Her name was, um, 30 girl. She was off this kind of well-known, um, black Bioc male named, mm-hmm. uh, Diablo. And so we were, we were really kind of thrilled about being able to put, uh, to potentially pair, that, that kind of melanistic Bioc line mm-hmm. with something uh, quite as you know yellow as Tarzan. So, just there was no way we could split it. So. Right. That Brian's house. <laughs> so, was I mean, as far as just aside from the Wamina and that Bioc, is that the only locality stuff you have? Yeah, I mean, I've got things that are probably about as close to locality. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a female. Her name's Joe Girl, and she's a she's a Highland Wamina animal. <clears throat> And the Highland is kind of just undocumented stuff. And, and so, but she certainly is just, she's not a line bred designer animal. Mm-hmm. And, and then I've got some designer animals that are, you know, half locality. I've got um, a golden boy Bioc female here uh, that was produced at the barn. And, you know, so I've got some stuff like that too. But um, yeah, so I, I have stuff all the way from fully unrelated, um, essentially, you know, as as genetically diverse as a wild caught animal, you right. know, just full farm bred, well, uh, you know, uh, locality stuff. And then I've got it all the way to, you know, really tightly bred mm-hmm. designer stuff with plans to kind of mix and match. Now, do you, as far as mixing in some of that locality stuff into either the blue line, or is there, uh, or any of the other designer stuff that you're doing, is there a particular locality you prefer, like you kind of keep an eye out for in particular? Like I know Wamina are really popular with a lot of that, uh, you know, I'm I'm always looking for, and just paying attention to what I call compatibility, or you know, when people when people pair an unlikely pairing or a or a, 
you know, a less than icy blue male with mm-hmm. some locality type animal and they get really extraordinary results. And there just seems to be something about that combination. And, um, you know, you see a lot of really good results from these animals that people are calling, um, manakawaris now. They, um, or some people red sarongs or, yeah. or whatever, but, um, they seem to be doing a really good job of pairing up with the trooper Walsh blue line mm-hmm. and, um, and adding a lot of diversity, but not causing a big setback in blue uh, that you then have to breed your way out of. They they seem to be a, a good locality for blue. And then, mm-hmm. of course, Biox have always been used and a lot of fun for high yellow stuff and calico stuff and just other funky, multicolored blood bloodlines. Right. It's just every time I see a lot of designer stuff, if I, you know I I end up looking into the lineage at all, it doesn't seem like Wamina is that uncommon to be in the in the tree there somewhere. Uh, but yeah. it sounds like that that locality in general is being kind of debated right now from what someone else was telling me. I was talking to maybe it was Will Banks or somebody else the other day, and they were telling me that the the whole Wamina thing, some people don't think that that's a legit locality or not, but I, I couldn't tell you. I'm not too hip to it, honestly. Yeah, so I, I'd, I'd have to brush up on, on my locality stuff to, to really be sharp there, but from what I understand, you know, Wamina is is a is a town or a collection or a distribution point mm-hmm. that is just centralized and they bring a lot of animals in from surrounding areas and 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 because there's kind of a a town there a population density then they're all just kind of lumped into this one yeah. Lamina category yeah but going back to the original Biak you had, how much has your husbandry changed since you you started off? Like, what was your setup like with your first chondro compared to now? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I started out with, um, you know, like animals in, in tape, uh, I mean, in tubs. Um, uh, set up over, you know, like heat tape mm-hmm. and um, really, really, really simple setups. And then, um, and then that just quickly changed, you know. And then I got some uh, some vision cages, and I made some cages and and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I've kept them kind of maybe not with chondros, but I've certainly kept snakes all the way from those original ball pythons, like pet shop ball python in an aquarium, all the way to what I do now, which is you know um, everything's on proportional thermostats and heat panels and open front glass front cages and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that gotcha it seems like the running theme with a lot of people that get into chondros is their first one was was more or less a, just a disaster and i know mine definitely was um which my first one i actually bought i think it was eight years ago and it was a biak from underground um and it lasted about a month and then i lost it and i just looking back on it now i see the pictures and like the facebook memories and i'm like my god what was i doing i just i didn't have a clue <laughs> Yeah, and then then husbandry wise, I mean, yeah, that's changed too over time. Um, you know, certainly, of course, from those really, really, really early days. But even after I started keeping them in, you know, open front cages and and how like, you know, for the most part, keep them now. I've I've also made changes in in the way that I keep them. I I, I talk a lot about like I have center mount panels instead of over yeah, to one side, yeah. and and um and I just do things a, a little bit differently and. And, um, and it has really worked well for me and, 
and I like the way the cages behave, you know, and the way that the thermodynamics in there, I guess, the, the where the hot spots are and where the where the cold spots are, and I and I just like the way the animals behave that way, and and it's and and I've um, switched all my cages to that, and it works really well. So does that mean you're using longer setups? Like, what are your what are your what are the dimensions typically of what you're keeping your? I guess we can start with your adults and kind of go down from there. Yeah. So my adults are in. They're probably about twenty tall, or by twenty deep, mm-hmm. by thirty-two wide. Okay. Yeah, so they're like a twenty by, or maybe a twenty-one by twenty-one by thirty-two, mm-hmm. something like that. They're they're I, I keep chondros. I have some new cages. I have some animal plastics cages, and some things I'm setting up. But right now, I keep some chondros in um, like a Rubbermaid tub that's got a, a decorative face frame on it yeah. with glass track, yeah. and um, and so those tubs have got. You know they're not a square shape, and so they're roughly about twenty by twenty by thirty-two. Mm-hmm. I've I've come to prefer longer cages definitely in the last years. I have one cube, and that has my male in it, and I'm I'm really not a fan of cubes now. I just I I prefer giving them more length and more of a gradient because the cubes I find they just they don't really have much anywhere to go really. Right. It seems like my yeah. male is just constantly. Unless he's cruising at night during the day, he's just sitting there under the under the heat panel. I mean, I keep him in the low to mid eighties. Um, it just there's whether your hands at the bottom of the cube or towards the top, you know, it feels there's not a whole lot of difference between the the gradient. Right. So now you've got him in. How wide are your cages now? My females and she's in an API that I got from my uh, from Jake, the co-host for the other podcast that I do, uh, and that one's like a four footer by maybe 18 by 24 i think she's wow. a she's a big biox so it works out for her uh and then i have another male who's a sub-adult he's in one of the 200 court uh with the tub conversions i got from brahms the python mm-hmm, portals sure. which i love i'm definitely getting more of those uh and then i have some smaller ones that are going to be needing upgrades soon uh and they're they're probably going to go in something like a i don't know a 19 or 21 court until they get upgraded into that 200 court uh python portal tub but i know like being having longer cages i can understand the central mounting of the the panel uh but what have what has been sort of your your results with that like what do you notice differently compared to having it to one side or the other well so in my in my experience most chondros do a lot of spend they spend a lot of time on the cool side of the cage Mm -hmm. and and so, in my opinion, um, whatever temperature you want them to get up to consistently, you know, of course, there are going to be times where they, they go and bask and do their own thing, but maybe I'm just doing a little bit of thinking for the snake. And so if I want the snake to get up to whatever temp I wanted to get up to, I, I get the, the cool side up to that temp that day. Now, I don't mean 86 or anything like that, but but that's basically in my opinion where the snake lives its life is on the cool side and the majority of its um, temperature that it's exposed to is going to happen over there and so one thing i found with the center mount panels is for one it allows me to control that a little better and two it makes it have two cool sides and so the snake does seem to do a little bit of switching back and forth whereas with the um, panel on one side 
Snake essentially is going to sit on that other side mm-hmm. because there is only that one cool side option. And so and um and yeah i just i just think they and i keep them a little cooler than i used to and so there's a lot more just ambient going on than this blasting hot side and this really cold cold side and just hoping that they go back and forth Mm -hmm. it's just it's probably a, a cooler hot side and a warmer cool side making for less gradient and more just softer ambient temperatures and a real gentle rise in temp in the day. Now they have access to get under that panel and, and truly get some true basking mm-hmm. temp um, where, you know, shines down some radiant heat onto them. But, um, but no, not for the most part. Okay. And what, what temperatures do you usually keep yours at daytime? So the cool side normally goes in that 80 or 82 degree range. And then they'll have access to something that's maybe about 84 or 85 in the middle at the at the basking spot. So, okay. Pretty standard. And then with a five, and at night, I give a five-degree night drop. So they drop down to about 78 mm-hmm. degrees or 77 degrees on the cool side at night. Do you keep the neonates in, in a similar temp or you let them, you keep them a little hotter? I keep them a little warmer, actually, especially when I start out in neos. Um, again... Um, I think what one of the more important temperatures when I keep neos is what keeps them really eaten well and snappy and fired up is um, what the temperature of that cool side of the uh, the tub is the front of the tub, and so I like to keep them a little warmer. Again, I don't put a. It's not like the back is ninety and the front yeah. is, you know, whatever. It's more like eighty five in the back and in eighty two or eighty one in the front or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, and that seems to work well for me there. Yeah, I, I listened. You were on a GTP Keeper radio at the beginning of the year, and I was listening to that episode the other day. Uh, and you were talking about how you notice a lot of the neonates will hang out in the cooler end a good majority of the time, and then when they want heat, they'll go to the back. And I notice with mine because I have a handful that I my first clutch I hatched at the beginning of the year as well. And uh, I notice mine a lot of the time. I mean, they're they're hanging out on the cooler end. They're perched up. They haven't moved. You know, I'll come home from work. You know, they're they're maybe in a different spot towards the front, but they don't spend a ton of time, you know, hugging the back or anything like that. They're definitely there's some that prefer the middle, there's some that prefer the back, there's some that prefer the front. So yeah, sure. Really and, I, and I was going to say, there's plenty of snakes out there that'll disprove any theory that mm-hmm. I've got. I've just I've got some that just stay smashed against the back yeah. wall and <laughs> just cook all the time. But um, you know, I don't know. I was telling somebody the other day on Facebook, I said, there's no such thing as buy the book with these things. They, any, there's no. no such thing as a poster child for care. They're, they doesn't exist. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things, a good way to summarize my keeping over the years has become like less intense or something or mm-hmm. less, you know, I keep them a little cooler and I have a little less gradient and I, you know, and I, kind of keep things just a little more steady and and when i breed them i don't drop them and slam them down as low as i used to go and, and all of those things and so everything's just a little bit more of a, a temperate um and not as many temperature extremes from left to right or seasonally yeah just more more sort of stable less less dramatic less extreme you know one to yep. the other just more sort of gradual and, and consistent yeah i think at one point we we really thought that these things needed to be um, slam down real low to get them to breed and mm-hmm. 
and um, and I just don't I don't think that that's as necessary. I do believe in what they call daily average temps. You hear people sometimes talk about that. It doesn't seem to be talked about that much anymore. But that you know, if you live in like a really warm area of the country, you can get chondros to breed by if you can't get them down as low as let's say someone else, you can get them there. You can lower their daily average down by lowering their daytime highs down. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then you can pull off some cooling that way. Um, and so, um, I, I just believe that we used to drop them so low and then now we can, you know, I found that they don't need to go that low if you don't cook them that hot during the day. And so, um, you know, I don't do Baskin spots of 88 or, mm -hmm. or 87 or anything like that anymore. And, and I don't cool all the way down into the, you know, like the 70 degrees anymore. And is that what you typically do when you, when you go into breeding season, you, you temperature cool them or temperature cycle them rather than, than food? What do you, Mm, well, again, so I, as my keeping changes, I'm exploring other things. I I, um, I probably started out really, really traditional, and I kept them, and I, just, I did really the standard cooling at night and all of those things, and I certainly was did okay with that. Mm -hmm. And um, But now I don't think you need to cool them. As, I've just had really good success with going down not quite as far, and um, – and then I've also just noticed and kind of extrapolated out the fact that, you know, a lot of times leading into breeding season, um, people feed their animals a lot. It's just psychologically, it feels like the right thing to do. You mm -hmm. know, you've got a female getting ready to breed. And so you just start giving her some extra meals because you're planning on breeding her. And maybe in your mind, you're thinking you're fattening her up or you're just being generous to her or showing her a little love or something like that. And then they pair these animals up and then they get gravid. And so that what's happening there, though, is, is some, in my opinion, it would, is like food triggering. And so, you know, as then people started talking about doing food cycling, of course, that makes sense to me. And, and, and it's just a more, more con, um, uh, decided way of doing it, you know, whereas people are almost subconsciously, they don't even realize that they're just feeding light throughout the year on a maintenance diet and then mm -hmm. picking up the pace toward breeding season. Um, you can then, if you want, take that and, um, try to harness that a little bit more and, and kind of time that a little better around shed cycles and the time of the year and kind of plan it when you plan to actually do that and how long you plan to do it for. And, you know, when's the next shed coming? Cause you've been writing them down for a year and you kind of know the intervals and, and so you can, and, and when's it get cool in your area enough to get the cooling that you're looking to do or whatever. And so you can kind of put some thought into that. And that's where it's kind of gotten for me now. And so now I, I do everything from food to light to temperature. I, I cool them a little. I shorten the day length a little. And I play with the food uh, rate a little. And it, it seems to do pretty well for me. And have you experimented with, with trying pairings at different times of the year? Yeah, I mean, so the other thing I've decided to try and has had – one success on um is you know sometimes people will pair an animal this is kind of like pre-ultrasound and, and you know and now people will can ultrasound snakes and just find out when they're developing yeah, follicles yep. and so but for so long people would pair these snakes in the fall and 
and then they would not breed and then you know they would pair them when what just felt like when we should breed them and and so then um i had a female that i paired in the fall and it it didn't take and so and then there would be other times of the year i would look at her and i'd think she was developing follicles and i wasn't doing anything to her <laughs> and so then that made me think like what i'll do is I'll just put this male in there because mm-hmm. we, we hear stories all the time about snakes that breed and then six months later a fertile clutch or yep. they breed that, one I mean, time. that's what happened with me with my first clutch. I put the male in there and I said, if he, you know, he'll know when she's ready. That was in June of last year. I didn't get wow. eggs until December. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Would that was when you got follicle development or eggs? I got eggs in December. I got babies right, in so- May. Nice. So it was a six month total process. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. And so I just decided, well, I, you know, I'll let them decide. I know, I know the sperm will be viable inside her long enough that, that if I put the male in there just for a few copulations mm-hmm. um, per month and just space it out once a month, I'll eventually catch her. And then him getting in there will stimulate her, his activity. He'll smell it. He'll know it. He'll breed her. He'll, t- he'll catch it right or right enough. And um and kick her the rest of the way into gear. And so I, I, I kind of called it like bump breeding, you know, like I'm just going to put him in there mm-hmm. and put him in there and put him in there. And I, I did that and um, eventually caught a female in correctly timed and had a clutch in the spring. And so that's the only clutch I've had in the spring. But, you know, of course, now I'll, I'll try others because I know that it, it works. And it was a, a really nice clutch and, a, and it was a perfect fertile clutch, too. Yeah, I mean, he was he went right to her as soon as I I put him in there. He he was all over her and, and watching them sort of go through the phases of they're locked. You know, a storm rolls in, they lock. We don't get rain for a couple of weeks. They're at opposite ends of the of the setup. You know, rain comes again, they're locked up. You know, just watching that that just the ebb and flow of interest was really interesting oh, really? throughout the whole process. Yeah, because I mean, he knows when she's ready. He's going to know so better than I will. you just cohabitated them. You just kept yeah, them together. Yeah, I, I separated them for food. But other than that, they yeah. were they were together full time for a couple months. And, you know, when she was willing, he was he was there. When she wasn't, you could tell. When they went to a shed cycle, they were turned off. They just, it was just watching them interact was really interesting throughout the whole process. But Yeah, cool. How I many think, eggs you get? Uh, I got a clutch of 17 with one slug. Uh, Did you hatch them all? No, I lost probably five in the egg full term. I had two that died after they came out. And now, uh, I sent Ian two and I have eight left. I got a few that are, I got three of those that are going out at some point, um, to buddies. But so that leaves me with a handful, but I've, I've got a handful that I picked out for holdbacks and stuff and they're doing really well. I just got them eaten unscented for the first time, uh, a couple days ago. That's a good experience. So that was a good feeling. Yeah. But I'm a firm believer that the male's going to know what he's doing. He's going to know when she's ready. And he'll make it happen. Yeah, right. Especially if he's a good breeder male. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's not just a, a shy male that's just, you know, not going to breed for you. But um, if he's a good breeder. And so, yeah, so I did that and, and got a clutch. And so... um you know, that kind of opened my eyes to the possibility or at least exploring the idea of kind of lightly breeding them all year long, you know what I mean? Kind mm-hmm. of just, and that also got me thinking about like that male bred her, um, once a month for a couple of days, I'd put him in there for a week and he would breed her a handful of times, 
But throughout that period, while I was breeding them, he actually spent the vast majority of his time out of the cage. And so that also got me thinking about the level of stress, you know, with the male in them and they're together. It mm-hmm. made me, and I haven't really fleshed out the idea or the theory or tried it again, but it made me think, I was like, wow, you can actually breed these things. And 99% of the, of the breeding season, they don't actually interact. Keeps the male's interest really high. Every mm-hmm. time you introduce him, it's like he hasn't seen her in a month yeah. or a week or whatever, but he really spends the vast majority of his time out of the cage and then breeds aggressively and successfully while he's in the cage, gets it done. And then you just get him back out of there. And, and my male stayed on food that way. And, um, and it just was, a uh, anyway, it's just worth trying some more and playing yeah. around with that. Yeah. Like I said, he, you know, there would be weeks where they would have no interest in each other whatsoever. And then a storm front would roll in and he was all over. And at first, See, I'm not, that's really neat too to just I see what I'm trying to do is do all this control. I'm like mm-hmm. a control freak, and I like that. That's kind of cool. You just put it in there and and um, watched what you got. So yeah, cool. and it was funny because I like I said I wouldn't see any action for a while, and then it would rain, and I'd go in that room just to see. And sure enough, almost every time he was he was on her, and at first I felt bad for her because he wouldn't leave her alone. She mm-hmm. she would go to one end, he'd follow her. She'd go back to the other end, he'd follow her, and she just. He wouldn't give up. He that that thing would breed a rope. And, uh, yeah, right. I mean, that's not a bad thing, but <clears throat> after a while, they you could tell they kind of had adjusted to each other. And he, you know, he's like, "All right, well, when she's ready, I'll I'll go do my thing, and when she's not, I'll just stay on my other end." And other than that, I never had any issues with them. They worked out pretty well. Yeah, well, that's good. I don't I don't cohab anything full time, but I think for the purposes of of breeding, you know, just. I don't know. I'm, I'm, that was my first time producing anything, and so I already have stuff that I'm going to be changing up next time. And I may do more of a, you know, the brief introduction thing, sort of like you do. Give them a couple days, remove them. Uh, and I did that at first, I guess, with these two. I just never really saw any results from it within the first few months. I was like, well, something's not happening. So finally that was when I was like, all right, you can just stay in there. When it happens, it happens. But... <clears throat> They're, uh, they're, they're funny snakes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Some males will, will, um, um, harass, you know, they're pretty aggressive. Uh, you know, they'll try to breed a snake 30 out of 30 days or something. And, you know, after, I don't know, after he's bred her about 10 times, I don't, I don't know if getting any more, uh, sperm in her is going <laughs> to right. increase the likelihood <laughs> of her getting gravid. If it hasn't worked this far, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at some point, just you know, it's, it has more to do with the the stage of the follicle development mm-hmm. than it does with with whether or not there's a viable sperm inside her. And so, and what's your what's your feeding regimen like for your your neonates up to your adults? So for babies, um, I feed babies like pinks mm-hmm. when they're first born, and I feed them every four or five days um, for a little while. I did see on your, I remember on your agenda that you talked about pre-shed or one of your questions might be. Right. But do you, uh, pre- do you feed ahead of, like right out the gate or do you wait? You know, I, um, used to do it after shed and then, um, now I have, uh, you know, after you get a few clutches under your belt, you're, you're a little more willing to not just listen to the what you've always heard type thing and try some things on your own. And mm-hmm. I've had 
I've had just as much luck pre-shed and any snake that I've fed pre-shed never had a problem. And anyone that didn't feed pre-shed didn't, it's not like I shook them up or scared them or, right. or, or they didn't get a setback from that. Mm-hmm. Um, they just shed and then they went to eating afterwards. And so, you know, now I do a little bit of, a little bit of both, you know, I'll go in there and give them a try and see if I can get meals in them. And then the ones that aren't very easy, I wait till they shed and, and maybe that's not necessary. Maybe that's just me being impatient, but you've waited 50 days. And so yeah, <laughs> you get in there and screw with them a little bit yeah. and have some fun and feed a few. And that's always fun. Yeah. I'm feeding mine once every five days or so. Um, yeah. And then my adults, uh, my, my sub, I have two that are juvenile to sub adult. I'll feed them maybe a hopper once a week. When they're starting to get to a size where I'm going to start slowing them down though. Cause my adults, I only feed them once a month. And it's usually just an adult mouse. If it's my female biot, if since she's bigger, I'll give her two adult mice. But other than that, I don't I don't feed them more than than once a month. So you, do you feed you feed an adult mouse to mm-hmm. your males once per month? Yep. How big are your adult males? Uh, my one adult male. I have another one. Like I said, he's going to be on deck for next year. He's probably two and a half years old. Mm-hmm. Um. He's on hoppers right now. I've just actually started upgrading him to, to slightly larger, like, small adults. Um, but my adult male that I bred, he just gets, like I said, one adult mouse once a month. If I have anything that's a little bigger, I'll throw it to him every now and then. But I don't I don't really feed him a whole lot. Um, I had I struggled him, with him for a long time. When I first got him, I couldn't get him to eat anything other than live. And uh, just within the last couple months now, he's taken frozen thawed like a champ. Oh, that's a relief. Yeah, that's, I hate feeding live. It's a pain. I hate having to keep the mice alive and worrying about if he doesn't eat them, then what do I got to do with them? You know, who do they got to go to? Which I really don't like cross feeding stuff like that. If something doesn't get eaten, uh, I don't like sending that over to something else. And Sure. The possibility of any sort of pathogens or anything like that getting spread and all that, so. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I just was in. You know, I I feed, I'll feed some animals once a month myself. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm letting things cruise, that's probably these days my maintenance diet is once every three weeks or a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but some things when I'm trying to put some size on a female, um, and and I'm doing that a year in advance when I'm really just actually growing a snake mm-hmm. um, instead of just maintaining one um, you know I'll feed that animal every 10 days or something yeah. and so the adults I feed you know a, a stair step from there so what the babies every five days the yearlings once a week the, mm-hmm. and eventually when they get you know 18 months two years old two and a half years old they're feeding about every um 10 days to, you know, 14 days and then, okay. and so on. Yeah. I just, I worry. Cause I know I bred crested geckos for a couple of years. Um, and I think it goes with any reptile, you know, obviously there's going to be a few exceptions, but they're so low metabolism. It's so easy to pack weight onto them, but it's really hard to get weight off of them. And so my biggest thing is I just don't want, you know, without flat out starving a chondro for an indefinite period of time to get it to lose weight. If it ends up being too heavy, um, 
I, I just keep them on the lighter side. You know, the female she will get a little bit extra every now and then, but but for the most part, I I keep the adults at once a month. How big was your um, female that bred and produced a clutch? Uh, I don't have a weight on her. She's probably pushing four and a half to five feet. Hmm. Um, like I said, she's a big biak. Uh, the only reason I haven't weighed her is because I don't have a scale that can actually calculate that. Um, it's all it's meant for like I think eight hundred grams and less. Oh right. Yeah. Oh, you think so? She exceeds eight hundred grams. Probably. Yeah. I, cool. I think it, it'd be pretty, pretty fair to say that she's, she's probably around that thousand gram mark if I had to guess. Nice. But the juveniles, like the males, I don't worry about so much with food. It's the females that I do try to sort of make sure they get a little extra every now and then. The males, I'm kind of like, whatever, you don't need the extra weight necessarily. But like I said, I'm still, as far as breeding goes, I'm still sort of navigating it all and trying to figure out what works for me. And, uh, you know, when you, I've said it multiple times on the show, when, you, when you're getting into it, you have, you'll have everyone tell you 20 different ways how to do the same thing, and they'll swear that that's the right way to do it. Sure. <laughs> and so it's kind of overwhelming. I keep the the pool of advisees small for that reason. Um, right. And I think it made life a lot lot easier. And this first time, now that I've gone through the whole thing one time, I'm a lot more confident going into the second time. I already know what I'm going to do differently. Um, I feel much more prepared for the second round. So. Oh, yeah. And you just need to... You know what? Fig- what works for you? They they have an acceptable range. I mean, you know, of temperatures that they can be kept in, and they have an acceptable. You know, you can grow them big or you can keep them small. And people will argue that, you know, two thousand gram chondros are great in captivity, and mm-hmm. somebody will argue uh, that a five hundred gram female is the way to go. And you know, just you know, I I think what you need to do is just. Um, keep some chondros and watch the way they digest food and look how they grow and look at their body and make the decision of where you think that female or that male ought to be. Um, they, 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 you know, you can do it by eye mm-hmm. and snakes, snakes, snakes look overfed when they're overfed Yeah, and they, you know, and they look a little thin when they need meals. <laughs> so... Well, it's we're we're in such a fortunate time right now to where if we have questions, we have guys like Harlan and yourself and and others that you know have have dealt with plenty of of common issues that we all see regularly and you know trying to make decisions on stuff like that of should I feed more, should I feed less? You know, you have people you can now reach out to in seconds and get the information you need, or just Google it straight out and see what you find on you know MVF still has posts and stuff up. You can still go out there and read all those old posts. I know that's that's kind of a a tall order for some people to go out and have to read things, but Yeah, that's a shame. Um the MVF is packed full of uh I was actually looking at some some posts earlier and the MVF is just packed full of you know so much uh information and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it's still there though. There's a lot of It is, yeah. A lot of forums that that disappeared, you know, once Facebook showed up. Mm-hmm. 
Well, when you when did you pair your first pair of condors, and what was the experience and results of that? So the first pair, you know, I've I've, I've paired a couple of times uh, that were a couple of seasons before I was successful, but the first clutch of condors I actually had was just um, whatever it was three years ago or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was that male soul train to a Highland Wamina female. And I had bred her the year before and she didn't take. And then, um, and then I bred her that one year and she did take, and she was about a thousand gram female and she laid a, a clutch of 20 eggs. And, um, managed to hatch 14 of them and um yeah they were really cool and i had some tough feeders in there and um i had some easy feeders too um so yeah getting a couple of tough feeders started and just it's just invaluable to to just get some chondros and Mm -hmm. raise them up and breed them and to and to breed a clutch and uh produce a clutch and to feed the babies and go through that entire experience i think that you know, you just become a better keeper that way. And, Definitely. And in some ways a better community member too, because you just, you kind of just know mm-hmm. what people are talking a little bit more about what people are talking about. And you kind of know why condors now cost what they do. Mm-hmm. And you kind of know what struggles other people are going through. And so I think it just makes you, it's just a great experience that you should, you should, you know, go after and, and have and feed babies and fight with that. And, yeah. You kind of come out the other side better I, at it. You know what I mean? Better frustrating at for a lot of people, I think, because there's so many people that get into not just condors, but stuff in general. And right out the gate, you know, the first two months, they're keeping something they never had before. I want to breed it. You know, they're so quick to breed. And me, when I got into them, I I got my uh, male and then I got the female. And they just, I wasn't even planning on breeding. It just happened to be a pair. And so I was like, all right, well, in a year, I'll pair them because I was like, let me let me get some time with them. Let me make sure I actually enjoy them before, before I decide I want to make more of them. And right. I think cause David did something similar, you know, his first clutch, he's been waiting on that for years now. Like he got these babies, raised them up and now he's bred them. And I feel like that sort of situation and sort of the situation like mine, where it was, you know, looking down the road saying one day I'm going to produce some, it's so yep. much more, you get so much more out of it when you've put in all that time and those, you know, the care sure. to raising them up and getting them to that level than just buying a pair and putting them together and being like, cool, I got eggs. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's really cool to buy. That's really cool to buy neonates and then to raise them for whatever, how many years mm-hmm. and then, and then breed them, you know? And how many, how many do you typically pair in a year now? Does it kind of vary to as far as what's um, ready? Two or, two or three pairs. Now, when I get into this new place, that, that is my goal was to be able to expand. And I've got some youngsters that are coming up. So there will be a period where I've got um, more females ready in the fall that I could pair. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I'm anxious to do that and to have a little more action going on. But I just need a little elbow room yeah. to be able to do it. And do you, you're if your yours have heat panels, you're not running ambience in your room then, I'm assuming? No, nope, I'm not. I'm running heat panels in all my cages, and I'm running uh, heat tape and all that stuff in all my racks. I like the thought of ambient, but I don't like working in ambient. It's right. not enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, I guess what you'd have, like a room of 84 degrees yeah, or something. Yeah, it was like, that's, not, that's not fun. I don't like being in there and 
sweating and dodging uh, pissed off snakes and you know. But uh, when you're when you're breeding your females, like this female, like I said, I got eggs uh, late last year, got babies at the, towards the beginning of this year, but I'm not going to breed her again until next year. Do you typically give your females a year off? Yeah, sure. Kind of alternate I a do. little bit. I do, but I think that, you know, I'm seeing as time goes on that some of these smaller females, you know, if they are smaller and then they lay a smaller clutch because of that, they don't lose as much weight like a, like a thousand gram mm-hmm. female or, or a larger female and she lays a big 20 egg clutch. She's going to, you know, lose many hundreds of grams and, um, and, and even though she's bigger, she can't, you know, gain weight. I mean, she can certainly gain weight faster, but you know, she's only got one set of one digestive tract in there and you just can't shove it so much through her. And, right. and so she just needs that extra time off. But I'm thinking that I don't have a lot of examples to go by, but some of my smaller females um, lay, you know, or have laid a 12 egg clutch or a 10 egg clutch or something like that. And, and they only lose a couple hundred grams and that's, um, you know, more feasible to kind of get them back into shape. And right. so they may be able to do a little bit better job of breeding annually. And have you tried maternal incubation at any point? I haven't. Um, and I guess sometimes I've had the fleeting thought about that that would be neat and that would be a, a cool thing to do to kind mm-hmm. of put it under my belt as a chondro keeper. But I just don't have any snakes that I'd be willing to... Yeah. <laughs> quote unquote sacrifice yeah yeah i don't i don't blame me i was gonna do it with this girl and then i I ended up bitching out last minute i was like i'm gonna try it right i got nothing to lose you know it's not a crazy expensive animal it's you know it's if anyone is in a position to try it out it's probably me but i i got i saw her hived up over those eggs and i was like no i'm pulling them it ain't happening can't do it so I did talked, she hive up on them perfectly? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. Pretty well. And uh, I she was looking really rough at the time, but then I go back and look at her now. I'm like, man, she totally could have handled that because she bounced back real quick. She she She's back to normal pretty much size-wise now. She's maybe a little thinner than she was going in, but <clears throat> I was like, she totally could have handled that and done it. But, you know, that first time, it's just everything's nerve-wracking. Everything's new and terrifying and... Sure, and I think some animals just rebound faster. Some animals just mm-hmm. put the weight back on real quick and look they look normal real, real fast. Some of them, it really takes a lot out of them. Yeah, and the, the some of the biggest stuff I'm going to be changing up next time I pair her uh, is going to be my incubation. So I'm curious as to what, how do you prefer to incubate your eggs as far as substrate uh, versus no substrate, your temperatures, you'd like to use a bigger box, a smaller box. Yeah. You give us the yeah, so I, I use a, a, I make, I made my own wine front or mm-hmm. wine fridge, glass front uh, incubator, which you see a lot of people make. And it's got yep, a false wall in the back and fans and all that stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty simple and a pretty standard, at least a uh, design that most people would go after. Nothing special there. And then, and then I use, I have done it with Sims boxes. I've done it with the old, um, container store boxes that were described in Greg Maxwell's book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now I use a larger 
tub that I got from Target, and it's just a it's a little bit larger than the the extra large Sims box, and um, I think that extra airspace in there um, allows those eggs to kind of get that heat away from them and that tail end and like dissipate the heat. Right. They're not really trapped up in this small little tiny half a cubic foot box, and um, and so yeah. I do that, and then I also run a ventilated box, whereas a lot of people run a fully sealed box these days, it seems. And so that is something that seems a little bit different that I do. And I keep um, tape on the holes in the box, um, and I untape them at the very end um, and, and really, really ventilate that box. But even while it's incubating, I've got... Um, you know, at least one hole open and let a little air exchange, oftentimes two. And at the very end being how far from, from the hatch date? Maybe, you know, I overthink things, and so maybe I'll do a few at day 14 and a few more at day 10, and then I let it ride. Okay. And do you you just do them substrate-less, or you put them, use vermiculite? I have done else? both, actually. Um and I've got nothing bad to say about vermiculite other than, you know, you you read on the internet, and you you look at people's pictures, and you you read in the books that uh, people do it no substrate, and so you you set them up no substrate, and you go after it that way, and, and you have pretty good success. But I've also had a clutch that dried out on me, and I put them on vermiculite, and, and in some ways they behaved better on that vermiculite than mm-hmm. than I've ever had them behave ever before i mean the eggs were just extremely plump and the shells were really supple and soft and um and so anyway there's something there and it's certainly nothing i'm um unwilling to do or have anything negative to say about it i think i'll actually try it some more um, yeah that's that's my plan for next time i did the substrate list thing this this time and luke had the same issue with his first clutch is he had them over water they got dried out he put them in vermiculite they came right back no problem Oh, yeah. This time, mine, probably two weeks in, started looking pretty dehydrated. I had some people tell me, they are like, no, they look fine. I had some other people tell me, dude, those things are dehydrated. And I was like, eh, I don't think they're all right. They were dehydrated. So next time, I'm definitely trying vermiculite. Um, I don't I don't know yeah. what it was about that substrateless method that just, I don't, it's a six-quart shoebox, so maybe that's the first issue, because I know next time I'll likely be going with something a little bigger for the same reason you, you just said a minute ago about there being more airspace. It's a little less concentrated, quote-unquote, and more, there's more of a, I guess, a gradient, more airspace for, for heat and stuff to, to move. Um, mm-hmm. So, and there's just, there's a lot of the stuff I'm going to be changing next time is going to be egg-related and incubation-related. Yeah, yeah, I've um, I've had better luck in the bigger box without getting to avoid getting windows and mm-hmm. get a little more air exchange around the eggs and things like that. And I, and I like the idea of vermiculite because I like the idea of having a ventilated box. And so sometimes when you're going substrateless, you've got a conflict of interest there. You know, my my brain tells me air exchange is good, and I'd like to have the box ventilated if I could find that away. And I like the idea of keeping the tops of the eggs dry. Um, it seems like a lot of times that's where windows begin mm-hmm. when they do begin. And so, so that I want that, but then if a lot of times with no substrate, if you have a box that's overly ventilated, you know, you get dehydration. And so yeah. what I found with vermiculite was, you know, it provided hydration from underneath 
and um, and provided that into the shell. But I was able to keep a lot of air exchange in that box and keep the tops of those shells really dry, and and they just looked beautiful the whole the whole ride through. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking I'm gonna have better results with it next time, but I don't know. I originally when we first starting out to I had a uh, thermos uh, not a thermostat but a, a thermometer in the egg box that was reading one thing the thermostat was set at a different thing and then my temp gun was giving me another reading uh so i had a little bit of a fiasco with that i thought i had it dialed in right where i needed it originally so some stuff had to change up in the beginning you know within the first couple days um but it it eventually leveled out but what what temperature do you typically like to cook your eggs at so you know, 80, I guess the simplest way to describe it would be 87.5. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes I'll knock a few tenths off in the last week or two just to, again, I don't even, who knows if that even is needed or whatever, but makes you feel good, makes you feel like you're uh, doing everything you can to try to prevent them from getting a little too hot in that egg box and having late-term stillborns and stuff like that due to any kind of overheating. And so mm-hmm. um, I'll cool them down you know, a half a degree the last week or something. And do you prefer to cut the eggs after the first one's pipped or you just let them, let them do their own thing? I, um, try to let them pip for the most part on their own. I'm trying to, over the years, build the courage to let them all pip on their own and to not pip any. And Mm -hmm. it's a tough call, you know, when you've had half the clutch pip and the other half not, and they're holding out and things like that. And so, you start questioning whether or not the, is it the egg is being dehydrated and not having enough moisture or, or flexibility in the shell or, you know, what is it? And so you kind of pull the trigger and you, you'll pip some. So um, I'm sure every keeper has gone through that where they've wrestled with themselves and ended up pipping them and being disappointed that they pip them or being happy that they pip mm-hmm. them. I, mean, I think it's a coin toss. And so anyway, I'm and each of my clutches has so far been kind of progressively more exciting and cool that I've been really happy about and, so I haven't uh, built the courage up to just put them in there and shut the door and wait the time and see what happens and, and just let them pip if they pip and don't if they don't. And But, I, but I'd but i like to. I'd like mm-hmm. to get there. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah. It sounds like good bragging rights. And I, so yeah. I, I want to reach that <laughs> mountaintop, but I have not gotten – I'm not strong enough to uh, to resist yet. Yeah, my dad's breeding gray band king snakes and uh... – he just had his first clutch uh, hatch a couple of days back, and five died in the egg. And so then he had this oh. other clutch that was supposed to hatch around the same time. And I told him, I was like, well, when the first one pips, you know, similar to the chondros, cut the other ones. And when they come out, they come out. And they started coming out today. And I think every single one of them came out minus the really moldy one that was still attached to everything. So. Oh, cool. So, he, so this time he got one to pip, and then he pipped the rest, and he he had better results. Yep. That's neat. I mean, whether those are going to be nightmares to get started on food, which I think they're already going to be regardless, because um, they're notoriously difficult. I don't know if you've ever kept Alterna, but they're they're a real pain when they're small like that. Uh, they're even piggier than probably baby condos are. Um, I don't know. He's going to have fun with those, because they're so small, too. They're tiny. Yeah, what do you feed them? You feed them like day old pinky mice. Yeah, if you can get them to take that, they're they're really they're big lizard eaters when they're small. So he's gonna have a have a hell of a time with those. But 
I think it's a lot like Conjures, though. The deeper you go into, you know, the captive bred generations, the sort of the easier it gets. Um, yeah. I know. I, I really wish I hadn't waited on using Chick Down with my group. Oh, really? Did yeah. you get a, a drastic improvement? Yes. It was it was night and day. Yeah. It'll... If it'll if it'll turn them on, it'll it'll turn them on quick. Mm-hmm. Like they'll they'll perk right up, and it's pretty cool. It was like they were they had been eating the entire time. Yeah, I don't even feed these di- these days. I again, I used to. There used to be some bragging rights to saying, um, you know, they all started with unthaw uh, unscented mm-hmm. frozen thawed pinks, and um, I don't even care anymore. I just I start with a little chick down and and just go straight to them with the chick down and. And just try to get them eating as quick mm-hmm. as possible, and you know, normally get most of them on the first try. Yeah, I waited way too long on that. I uh, I had a handful. I had like two or three that really started eating strong early, and uh, I had a handful that just they were having none of it. And then I finally got chicks, and like I said, it was like the, the switch had flipped. The reaction was almost instantaneous. You could, they went from having really no interest to all of a sudden it was like, oh, that's food. You know, they were all over it it was really yeah. really and it's so bizarre because that you know they're not even bird eaters especially that small like on paper that shouldn't even work yeah maybe it's some psych something ingrained in their psyche to like mm-hmm. you know these these animals they they go after i guess as babies you know lizards and bugs hold on <laughs> you know like lizards and bugs and things and um, and as adults, they go after probably the for the most part rodents and um, mammals and things like that. Probably maybe some lizards too. I don't know. And um, but they would certainly take advantage of I think a nest if they was mm-hmm. and maybe they're programmed to 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 know that smell and to know it's like a a good treat easy meal to yeah. capitalize on it. Mm-hmm. And and maybe it's not something that happens to them while they're a neonate. But it, it's something that they do while they're an adult. But that that gene is still in there even as a neonate. And it, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe they just can smell that baby bird smell and it kicks them into gear. I don't know. As long as it works, I don't. That's pretty much the point that I got to was you know whatever gets them eating. I really don't care at this point. Whatever gets food it, into them. It's well, it's the same way with lizards too. I I I've done chick down and and then in the last year or two with a with a tough feeder or two, I've tried some lizards Mm -hmm. and um and yes that will that also has an interesting reaction um to some of the most stubborn feeders that'll that will perk them up and kick them in to gear um when you thought you couldn't get them going otherwise were you using like a gecko or they were anoles and house geckos because i've always been curious with the lizard stuff especially you know anoles not being native to that part of the world you know, if if they recognize that as being something that's food, I, the geckos I can understand, the skinks I can understand, but the animals just seem like they might be the least. Oh yeah, they don't productive. care. Productive now, okay. No, no, no. Lizard is a lizard is a lizard. They like a lizard now. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> a, a super young baby chondro is is all about uh, a lizard, or you can even take a, like a little piece of a lizard tail. Mm-hmm. Or something, and um, and just on a wet pink, um, just use the wetness of the pink to just just stick it to the to the head or the little 
nose, mm-hmm. a little nib of that, that pink, and present that pink with him where he can actually, beyond just a little lizard scent, an actual little tiny pinhead size piece or a little fleck of that lizard tail on there, and it'll it'll kick him in sometimes. Yeah. All right. So we'll get into some of the closing stuff. Um, kind of going back to sort of the designer stuff and, and that aspect of what you're doing with green trees. Uh, what is it about designer animals that kind of drew you to them originally? Like what is, what was the initial appeal? Did you see one in particular in Maxwell's book or something like that, that made you just say, I really want to make more of those. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, Chondros are pretty magnificent no matter what. I mean, they're just colorful in general. Even their locality types are, are like, they're a, a really bright, attractive green snake. I mean, and so... An ugly one doesn't exist. Yeah, an ugly one doesn't exist. I mean, if this if these snakes were traditionally brown snakes and we were somehow able to selectively breed them to turn them green, the green ones would be called like super greens and people would pay big bucks for them and mm-hmm. they'd be really excited because they'd be a fluke because a green snake in itself is pretty pretty extraordinary and um and so they're they're just magical in general but um and really intriguing snakes that that, um that are fun to keep um in the way that they perch and they're arboreal and, and they don't hide under things and that's all fun but but there's no doubt that some of these snakes that you see that are just incredibly yellow incredibly pixelated in coloration or or bright blue they're 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 just they're pretty awe-inspiring and so um you know i always saw those in books and i always wanted them and i always i always thought that the the pedigrees were so cool and the history and the and the um and just seeing how the the pedigrees were constructed over time and how goals were achieved i just thought that that was really really cool um, it's the same thing with like horse breeding or horse yeah, racing yeah. Or, or dogs. That's, that's or... funny you say that because that's always how I've sort of looked at chondro breeding compared to other snakes. It's almost like the, uh, oh, what's the word for it? Um, sort of, not necessarily the equestrians of like the herp world, but similar. Like people mm-hmm. pay so much more attention to that stuff in chondros and they do. Any other group of snakes, I think. Sure. Yeah. And I yeah. Well, found and chondros that really respond well too. Yeah. Chondros uh, reward you from from selective breeding efforts. You know, they they really do. You can you can selectively breed them toward different colors, mm-hmm. and so they they keep and they and they seem to be infinite in their possibilities, and so um, you know it's never it never ends and. And, you know, I guess you could be a keeper, you can be a chondro keeper, and then I guess you could, you could breed chondros once or twice or one off. But mm-hmm. I think that if you want to be a breeder, I think that the, the, what happens to you is you, you start breeding toward something, whether it be a, a health goal or a sturdiness goal or a size goal, or you're, you're picking them out and keeping the ones you like the most for some reason. And then you're breeding them the following year and keeping the ones you like the most for some reason. And, um, and so you're, it's really a nice project to have in the house. And I guess you can do that with locality stuff too, but you know, I just really loved the idea that like the trooper Walsh blue line has been around for like 40 right. years. Cause I mean, what and, other, uh, what other corner of the hobby is trying to preserve that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, and you can just keep going and keep bringing yeah. in these really neat locality animals and keeping fresh blood. And, and it's just this long story and this long history of all these really incredible animals that are that are remembered and talked about, and mm-hmm. it's cool. Yeah, thoroughbreds is the word I was looking for. They're the thoroughbreds right. of the reptile world. Um, yeah, sure. But, and I meant to ask you this while we were talking about neonates, but what, what determines you – what? Uh, how do you go about picking holdbacks? You know, so certain lines um, and then just paying attention and, and watching which ones um, from other clutches of similar pairings have turned out cool or, you know, quite honestly, I mean, um, it doesn't even, you know, because every genetic combination is just this, you know, incredibly unique thing. Mm-hmm um incredibly variable sometimes you know past clutches can't even be as much of an indicator you just have to compare this animal versus that animal within the clutch right and just pick out the cool ones you know pick out the ones that strike you as as neat looking but yes for some of the bloodlines that i keep um yes there has been patterns of things to look for over the years that have kind of been developed and you know these super dark funky looking neonates that are really really incredibly dark with with uh i you know the patterns on them at this stage are are not natural they're not they would they're not on any they're not remnant of any locality pairing mm-hmm. pair, uh, animal they're even though not only have we manipulated the the external appearance of the animal as an adult the the neonates are 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 supernatural in appearance you know they're they're black and completely patternless or you know, incredibly dark with burnt orange markings and and just things like that that you 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 wouldn't see really on any of the yeah. the localities. You can see how they kind of came where they came from, mm-hmm. how they used to look like those m- m- localities, but but they're um, kind of hyper, you know, as far as their appearance. And do you uh, hold on to yours for an extended period of time before you decide if you're going to move it or hold on to it? You know, for my first clutch, there was more of them, and I sold about half the clutch. And um, but then some of my other clutches I have uh, that were smaller, I've kept them all. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll do either one if it's a really really special clutch. Yeah, no reason um, I may not decide to, to uh, hold them hold them back and, mm-hmm. and watch them. In the end, I don't mind. I mean, I certainly like the idea of passing them along to good friends and things like that. But I'm really into chondros. At least at this stage, I'm not. I haven't gotten jaded. You know what I mean. I yeah. I want to produce chondros because I want more cool chondros. Yeah. And I bought really cool chondros so that I, in hopes that I could take those two cool chondros and then have ten of them and mm-hmm. and um, and do all that breeding project thing and that long term and picking out good looking females and breeding my own stock and looking around and I'd be you know breeding two animals together that I produced and be multiple generations into my own bloodlines and things like that. And I'm at my own projects. And so that's really what I'm into it for is just, I, I really love chondros and breeding them and keeping them and stuff like that. Amen. That's been my motto since day one with these things is I just want to make cool green snakes. Right. Everything yeah, else and is I also really, really enjoy the community and the, and the friendships. I like, mm-hmm keeping them with my friends and reading them with my buddies and, and uh, chatting about them on a regular basis with my friends and mm-hmm. things like that. It's 
definitely a, a pretty tight knit group, uh, especially sort of up your way and sort of the Maryland, the Maryland crew and the Colorado crew and the Texas crew. It's where are you at? I'm in South Carolina. Oh, okay. Yep. There's no one down here. It's just me. Well, Ian's in West Palm Beach. He's about as close as it gets. Him and Steven Spear. Uh, Spear's in Georgia. But it's definitely not like Texas where everyone's like, yeah, I go to Bill Steagle's house all the time. You know, just. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the guy's so cool. He's got a radio show. Everyone's within driving range <laughs> of each other, you know. It's not the case here. Um, but what would be your top three to five tips you would give to someone getting into chondros and slash or breeding for the first time? Three to five tips. Um, I would recommend kind of just hanging out a little bit at first. Mm-hmm. And I would say read, like read all you can, but I just, it's a little bit tough on Facebook, you know, cause you're seeing these like little chops and you don't quite know, um, who's who and who knows what. Yeah. And so you got to kind of just do that research isn't as much as like Google searching and digging on the forum and, you know, obviously get the Condro books that everybody's got, get Greg Maxwell's book, get Terry Phillips book, read those things, read those resources and they'll teach you a whole lot. They'll get you started and, and they'll, they'll give you the information necessary to get a cage set up and get a snake going and all that kind of stuff. But then the rest of it, man, is just hang out and make friends. Um, and those connections are where you're going to really be able to tap into someone and, and, and get a mentor, kind of mm-hmm. some running mates, you know, some people, some, some buddies that you get to chat with on a regular basis and share what you're seeing and ask them questions and things like that. Well, that's what so I that's want. Probably, yeah, I want. That's what I want. My number to be, one tip is to just be a resource for people. I want it to be another reliable source for good information. You know how the how the best of the best keep theirs. You know how they breed theirs. Just clear cut, solid information that people can actually use. They don't have to really question too much of it. You know, or wonder if it's valid or if the person that I have on has been breeding for all of two months or keeping for all of two months. You know, I, I go for for guys that really have a lot of hands-on experience and and have a lot of time with the species, and uh, yep, I just I want you know I want the information to be good. There's a lot of misinformation about condors out there still, especially on YouTube and stuff. So trying oh, to combat man, that. Yeah. Yep. And then the other one I would recommend would be getting a um, buying about a probably a yearling would be a good thing to start with if you haven't kept condors ever before. Um, a little three-month-old neonate can be a little fragile, and it can be a little rough on you uh, psychologically or emotionally <laughs> if it doesn't. If it goes through some shipping stress and decides to shut down and not eat, or you have trouble, or you know, it's a little less forgiving. And so, a nice sturdy yearling that's eaten fifty times, and you know. Um, you know, it feeds pretty darn automatically, instinctively, and aggressively, and um, that's a good snake to start with for somebody. Mm-hmm. And to also go after a captive bred animal. Um, it doesn't need to be an extraordinarily expensive animal, but you can find a, a breeder out there that's got a really nice captive bred animal with a little bit of lineage behind it, and 
a neat story to tell and and they're a respected member of the community and they'll back you up when you're having trouble and help you out and i think that's a great way to go definitely so what do you got uh what do you got planned for the rest of the year and into 2020 so i'm moving and i'm building that the you know i'm going all out um it's gonna be cool i'm really excited about that and um as far as reptiles go man i'm I'm really excited about that new room, amount of room and I'm going to mm-hmm. get some new animals and I'm going to, I'm going to get some, uh, some Gila monsters. I've oh, always wanted man, them. I'm jealous. Yeah. Gila's look like so them. much fun. They, yeah. Right. I'm, I don't, I'm kind of a newbie. I don't have anybody <laughs> that I can go over to their house and hang out and check out their Gila monsters. Mm-hmm. And all I can do is, you know, I've kept a beaded lizard before, but I, I don't have anybody that I can, you know, you can go, I can go up to the National Zoo and see the one that they've got there, or I can, but there's nowhere I can get a lot of keeping experience. Right. And so the only way I can do this is I'm just going to have to dive in, and, and I'm going to have to get my keeping experience by just getting some Gila monsters mm-hmm. and, and keeping them. And so I, I hope I like them, and, um, you know, and that kind of thing. And so it, I'm, I'm really, really intrigued by them. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Are you keeping anything other than chondros, like breeding anything, keeping anything? No, I, I haven't. Um, I've just been really, really focused on mm-hmm. building the chondro collection I've always wanted. And they'll always be my, my number one. But I also want to keep a pair of... Um, a pair or two of basins. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, really excited about keeping some basins soon. Those go hand in hand, man. Those and chondros. Everyone's like, which one's better? It's like, get both. Yeah. <laughs> Problem solved. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you can't really breed them for anything but white, but mm-hmm. the white that they do breed them for is extraordinary. And it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's clearly, uh, you know, there's some special ones out there for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to get my hands just on some Northerns. Like, I, I want to give them a shot at some point. I don't know when, but it is in the plan uh, eventually to, to take a crack at them. I have Amazons now, but not uh, not the Caninus or the, the Bates Eye. Right. Yeah, I've kept. I've actually had an Amazon. I just didn't even think about it, but I don't know, maybe 15 years ago I had an, some Amazons, and they were a lot of fun too. They're, a, they're good eating. The pissiness is half snake. the fun. Yeah, the 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 personality is is what makes him so joyful. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so I'm looking forward. I, with anything that I keep, I want to keep. That's a challenge. I, I mm-hmm. don't want something that's really easy. And so heel monsters are pretty neat. Um, I think that they take you know 150 days to to incubate them and something crazy like that. So that's something I want to check off the mm-hmm. list. And then and then the basins are something like that because of the um, uh, live birth. Right. Just like to have the mm-hmm. experience, really. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so where can people stay up to date with what you're doing? Let's see. You have a Facebook so, page, but you don't have a website, correct? I don't. I don't have a website. And so my Facebook page is just called Mid-Atlantic Arboreals, and um, you can find me there. And I'll answer messages to, from that. I'll answer messages personally too. Um, certainly willing to, to chat chondros with people and help them out and mm-hmm. give a tip or two here and there if they're running into something they think I might be able to help them with, or if I share something online that looks like 
of interest to them that they want to dive a little deeper on, I'd be happy to chat with them on Facebook Messenger or on the phone. Mm-hmm. And so they can find me there and they can find me, find all kinds of pictures of my snakes and and um, clutches that I'm having. And soon I'll be, you know, building out a snake room. And so I'll, I'll make a big deal out of that and post a bunch of progression photos of how that's all coming along and, and all that stuff. So that's awesome. We don't, we don't have basements like houses with basements here because we're in a flood zone. The oh, hurricanes absolutely right. obliterate them. So no one here has a basement, but I did live in Chesapeake for a while as a kid twice, actually. So I know what it's, yeah. I know what it's like up there. It's a, it's a nice little area. Yeah, I actually, what part of South Carolina do you live in? I'm in Beaufort, right over okay. the border from Savannah and Paris Island and Marine Corps. And That's cool. All that good stuff. About an hour and a half from Charleston mm-hmm. down the coast. Nice. So, yeah, man. Um, I really appreciate you doing this, man, especially on your birthday and all. Yeah. We'll uh, definitely get you back on. Hopefully David and uh, and Luke can join us then. And um, I'm sure I'll be hitting you up with questions and stuff at some point myself so yeah maybe i'll have a new snake room bit uh built and have been bitten by a gila monster or something <laughs> i could share about that or definitely yeah awesome man well i really appreciate you coming on yeah man thanks so much for having me and um yeah i appreciate it and we'll talk soon definitely yep thanks buddy Take it have easy. a good night good night you too All right, folks, that was it. John Irby, Mid-Atlantic Arboreals. Go check him out on Facebook. Um, That's it. Thanks to David Brahms, uh, one of the sort of the rotating guests I have here on the show. He's the sponsor with Specialty Enclosure Designs. Please check out his Facebook page. Check out his website. Awesome products, Python portals, Draco portals, mini hooks, perch uh, holders, what else? He does it all. It, and you need to go check it out. If you have anything slightly arboreal, David's got a product that your animal will use and enjoy. And it's not crazy expensive. They look really sharp. David does a great job. So please, specialtyenclosuredesigns.com. Check them out on Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. Subscribe to the show, like I said at the beginning. SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Um, it's a bummer that Luke couldn't be on, but no big deal. He's... uh handling whatever it is out there in California that those dudes handle. So, thank you. We'll see you next episode. This was episode 15. Take it easy.